Hello, everybody, and welcome to Spirit Matters, found at spiritmatterstalk.com and our YouTube channel and everywhere you can uh, find subscriptions to podcasts like ours so you can get it automatically on your phone. And uh, you're used to seeing my illustrious co-host, Dennis Ramundi, but uh, as of late, he uh, has been, is unable to be with us. He'll be back soon so we can uh, resume uh, being the Huntley Brinkley of spirituality. For those of you old enough to remember <laughs> who Huntley and Brinkley were. Um, and we hope that you do subscribe. It's free and we want to keep it that way. And so uh, if you're also moved to contribute so we can cover expenses, that would also be great. Today, we have with us a most welcome guest making his second appearance on uh, Spirit Matters, but it's been a few years. Robert Jonas is, uh, in addition to being an old friend of mine, an author, musician, environmental activist, and retreat leader, and is the founder and director of The Empty Bell a contemplative sanctuary based in Northampton, Massachusetts, with an emphasis on Buddhist Christian dialogue and the arts. He is also a master at the Shakuhachi bamboo flute. Um, I have had the pleasure of hearing him play live and our recordings, and it's, it's a traditional uh, Zen instrument and one I highly recommend you listening to. And here today we are going to talk about his new book, My Dear Far Nearness, The Holy Trinity as Spiritual Practice. There it is. So my pronunciation and the uh, difficulty of translating a hyphenated word into the spoken <laughs> language you see the cover very good and your blurb is right here my blur i blurbed it <laughs> on the back cover <laughs> it, it was worthy enough for me to blurb well jonas welcome good to be uh, with you and for those uh, who don't know you um he prefers to be called jonas even though it's presumably his last his surname Mm -hmm. Welcome back. Good to see you, as always. Thank you. And for our listeners, um, we normally begin with a um, overview of the guest's spiritual history, but you gave us that when you were on the first time. So we recommend you go back if you want to know more about Jonas and his past. It's good. He's listened to his uh, first uh, recording with us. And... I will, while I'm at it, we also interview Jonas's wife, Margaret Bullet. Is it Bullet Jonas? No. Bullet, Bullet. Bullet Dash. A lot of dashes here. Bullet Dash Jonas. I'm going to close my door, by the way. And I highly recommend you uh, go and listen to our interview with uh, Margaret, who is a uh, Episcopal priest and 
environmental activist. Jonas. Yes. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you. Let's begin with uh, an obvious question. Mm. The title of your new book, what does my dear far nearness mean? Yes, thank you. My dear far nearness is a name for God that was coined by Marguerite Poirette in the 14th century, a medieval mystic, a brilliant woman, very deep, compassionate, um, love-inflamed life, really. And um, it turns out she was too brilliant for the Catholic hierarchy. So in 1310, she was burned at the, alive at the stake wow. in Paris. Yeah, my dear far nearness. And I love the title that she gave us because uh, the divine is both near and far. Um, we're one in the divine, but there's also the value, the beauty of distinctions that uh, I'm not Phil, Phil's not me. <laughs> is it also um, resonant with it being uh, omnipresent, always here, nearer than near, and yet there's a feeling sometimes in seekers of it being, of the divine being inaccessible, hard to reach, far <laughs> in the sense of seemingly out of grasp. Is there also that part of it? Yes, yes, far, far in the sense of uh, another word that's used is transcendent, you know, um, and the way I work with it in the book, uh, My Dear Far Nearness, is I'm, by the way, I, sh I should say that I'm, I'm working from a Christian perspective, uh, but I've also been trained in Zen and somewhat in uh, Tibetan and Vipassana Buddhism. Um, and I have um, relationships with Hindu teachers. So, uh, but through all these experiences of other faiths, I retain this fundamental groundedness in the Christian dear far nearness. So uh, what the book does is to go spelunking, you know, this word cave exploring, go, go deep into the cave of our hearts to explore who we really are. And in the Christian tradition, who we really are is the Holy Trinity. I want to get to that in a minute. Yeah. But I'm, uh, something came up while we were talking about this near and far seeming duality. Um, I remember reading the uh, Christian mystic philosopher, Simone Weil, mm -hmm. and something, uh, she used a metaphor that stuck with me. She was saying that the yearning for God is in itself a connection, and the, the feeling of frustration is in a sense a practice. And she compared it to uh, two prisoners separated by a cell, a wall of a cell who communicate by through the wall. So the wall is a separation, mm -hmm. but also the means of connection. Oh, I like that. That's beautiful. Does that make sense in yeah. your context? It sure does. I, um, 
You know, my part of my background is uh, psychotherapy, and uh, I was trained in what's called the psychodynamic approach, basically. And what I learned in that practice, when I, as I worked with people, is that uh, we have an ego self, and uh, and that ego self is formed from childhood through our uh, from birth to childhood, young adulthood, eldership, um, in primarily in relationship. It's relationships that that form our our ego self, and we need to have an ego self. And I made the mistake when I was younger of thinking, well, you got to get rid of the ego. Ego is bad. Um, so, so the way I work with um, the not the wall and the knock on the wall is that I. It, this is actually my experience, as much as I can put words on it, is that the ego, as we, as we, dance this spiritual life, the ego becomes more and more transparent. So we always will have an ego, and that is grounds us in our relationships and in our work, and how people know us, whatever in the in the everyday world. Uh, but it becomes transparent, so that through us, we see th through the wall of our ego, is, which is now transparent. We see this light that is eternal, and eternity is a really important word for me because you know, growing up Christian. Jesus often talked about eternal life and St. Paul talked about eternal life. Well, but when I was growing up Lutheran in Wisconsin, um, eternity, eternal life was something you got later if you were good. Yeah. It was essentially a moral thing. But now what the, my practices in the East, Buddhism and Hinduism and so on have taught me uh, is that eternity is always here. It's always in the present. And when I am really present, I'm in, my ego is transparent to this vastness, this limitless sense of presence. And presence is, a, you know, I, I use that word a lot, presence. Yeah. Yeah. And that's eternal. Yes. Um, this is fascinating. Um, the, you touched on ego and I, uh, some, my early teachers, this uh, disavowed us of the notion of killing the ego and extinguishing the ego, you know, because I mean, all ego means is your individuality. And as long as we're embodied, we will have an ego. Um, and they would talk about expanding the ego so it reaches the eternal. And you're talking about making the ego transparent <laughs> it's a very similar thing and uh no it's different it's different because as a psychotherapist i'd say if you expand the ego we call that narcissism well no i get that but that's <laughs> not how they meant expand. no <laughs> i understand <laughs> yeah and right. this is this is why intercultural conversations are so tricky <laughs> yeah and it's and why language is so tricky because if you say oh make your ego transparent they'll say i don't want people seeing through me <laughs> <laughs> yeah but when you see through me you see the light capital l <laughs> um tell us why you wrote this book what was the I, and i want to get to what you mean by the trinity and and how you interpret that because it's so such a a live topic in the context of a Christian culture. Um, but tell us why you wrote the book. I'm sure those two are related. Uh, yeah, uh, 
I'm going to do that in two different ways. First, to touch on the Trinity. Most Christians on Sunday morning, with the, when they go to the church, they'll recite, recite the Nicene Creed. And out the Nicene Creed is the, the creed that proclaims God as a Trinity, a three in one, one in three. But most, my experience growing up as Christians, still go to church occasionally, uh, don't understand what that means. They really don't understand experientially what the Holy Trinity is or means. So that's in the back of my motivation to, to write this book. So I'm, because I'm taking a completely different track, it's, uh, I treat the Holy Trinity not as a dogma or a doctrine, which most people do, but more as an experience. Um, and I make the argument that Jesus, Jesus Christ had a Trinitarian awareness, that his awareness revolved in this tripartite way as he was interacting with people, as he did his ministry. So that's in the background. Um, I'll get to that in a second. I have to tell just a little personal story why I wrote this book. Please. So I grew up, I grew up in the Lutheran tradition where this, this Jesus, um, it was on my grandmother's wall and she was German Lutheran and she taught me how to pray. And I, I grew up in it, as, as you know, Phil, um, uh, my parents had, were in the bar business. So I was growing up in the bar business where my parents would come home al alcoholic uh, in an alcoholic haze at 2 a.m. when the bar closed. And I'd be in charge of my younger siblings to get us out the door, et cetera, et cetera. But I always had this experience at Graham and Gramps' house. They took us in, me and my siblings. Uh, and this, this Jesus was uh, the same as, these were painted by the same painter, by Warner Salmon in the 1920s, 30s. And these images of Jesus became Jesus for millions of people. And, and for me, because I, um, I experienced chaos in my life and I was in trouble with the law. I was arrested for breaking and entering when I was 11 um, because I hated, I hated people who had stuff who were happy and I wanted their stuff. <laughs> and I the only way to get their stuff is to steal it. Um, and they, they, you know, a cop caught me, put me in, in a jail cell and I had to wait for my mother. And while I was waiting for my mother, he took me out and put me in the, magistrate's office and I went in there and he closed the door and I went into the magistrate's desk and I stole a pair of sunglasses while I was waiting for my mother. I was hardcore and I carried um, a, a switchblade knife, which I bought to brought to my first classes in Lutheran um, uh, sort of uh, bar mitzvah in the Lutheran tradition. <laughs> um, and oh, one of my classmates from high school in the 60s remembered me walking in in a black leather jacket with a switchblade as I was beginning what, what we called in those days a juvenile delinquent <laughs> yes that's right <laughs> <clears throat> well lots of things changed for me I was fortunate to find some good people to help me through life and um but this Jesus was always there in my prayer life right from the beginning um Grandma taught me this prayer, which, which everyone in Germany knows, by the way. It's, Ich bin klein, mein Herz ist rein, niemand im Wohnen, niemand im Wohnen aus Jesus allein. I am small, my heart is pure, no one lives in my heart but Jesus alone. 
and Jesus was the manifestation of love. You know, when he's opening the, the, he's knocking at the garden door of our hearts. Okay. And never mind what he looks like. I mean, he was, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> he, yeah. he was painted, he painted by Warner Selman, who was a businessman. And Warner Selman had this experience of a divine someone through Jesus or Jesus was his introduction. So, um, but I ended up going to Luther College. I was going to be a minister. The Vietnam War started. Um, I began to feel, and there was a Time Magazine article. I think it was Time or it was at Newsweek. God is dead or is God Time, dead? Time, yeah. very famous article in Time. Yeah, Time. Okay, thank you. So it was like mid-60s, I think. Yeah. And that's when I was at Luther College. And I thought, why am I being trained in theology when, you know, it's it's irrelevant. There is no God. So I transferred to Dartmouth and majored in government because I was going to be a senator. Like that's the way to change things. But unfortunately or fortunately, the, one of the first things that happened at Dartmouth, and I, it, it was hard work for me because I didn't have any money and I had several part-time jobs. I walked in by mistake to a Taekwondo karate class at Alumni Hall at Dartmouth, which is you know this huge old building from the 19th century. And there on the top floor, a wooden structure, there were like 30 Dartmouth guys. It was all men at that time. And the teacher was Donnie Miller, who had been trained by a Chan teacher. So I was learning meditation. And he would do things like have it. And we broke bricks and we broke stuff you know, with our edge of our hands and stuff. And then he told us to go outside into the Hanover winter and snow barefoot walk in the snow barefoot and the instruction was warm your feet with chi mm. so i had been you know christian and this is sort of spiritual to me i didn't go to church then i i dropped church but i still was thinking about jesus and i wondered did jesus have chi and that was like one of the first convergences for me of east west spirituality Maybe. Explain briefly yeah. for people who don't know what chi is. Yeah, it's um, it's the body, the living body energy and spirit and soul energy and mind energy. It's it's a, a sacred. Well, some uh, Thich Nhat Hanh once said that the Holy Spirit was chi, mm. uh, or was like chi. Um, so it's like that. Um, so that got me wondering, and then I discovered Thomas Merton, and. Um, here is a, an image of Thomas Merton sitting and meditating. Um, Trappist monk. He had friendships. He had friendships with the Dalai Lama and with other teachers. And notice how one his where his hands are. The I mean, mudra. Yeah, full lotus position, and his hand is in the mudra, and the other hand is touching the earth. Um, and there's a. There are stories of the Buddha touching the earth when he was enlightened. And there's also a story of Jesus touching the earth mm. when he for, forgave a woman who was caught in adultery and, and he, she was going to be stoned to death. And, and he, oh, I don't want this to fall over. Um, and he dropped to the ground, all these screaming people and the guys with their rocks. And he, and they said, what should we do with her? And it was a test because if he was a true Jewish teacher, if he was a rabbi, like he said he was, he would stone her because that was the law. 
but but his other followers are thinking well if he's really a spiritual teacher who is transcending the law to this divine presence he'll let her go and he uh, he knew it was a test like uh, they might kill him so he dropped to the ground he he touched his fingers into the earth and then he slowly got up and he said let the one without sin cast the first stone and i just think that's such a powerful story and it's an earth story and an inspiration story. So uh, I, uh, I, after um, after Dartmouth, I became uh, I was the Vista volunteer. I became a farmer. I, I was an organic farmer in New Hampshire for five or eight years. Then I couldn't support a family, so I decided I'm going to go back to school. So I went to Harvard. I majored in peace studies, but I got into an argument with my dissertation director and I changed my whole program from peace studies to psychotherapy. And I probably, and I also did that because I went into psychotherapy for the first time in 1980 and realized, fuck, but this'll, this is what's going to bring peace, man. Everybody has to get some psychotherapy, you know? So yeah, it changed my life. And that's where I met Henry now. And, and, um, then we became, uh, he was teaching at Harvard and he became, we became close friends. He helped me start the empty bell in the Boston area in 1994, uh, as the go-to place in Boston for Buddhist Christian dialogue. So I would, I would invite, uh, it was in a separate building, a, a carriage house. Uh, I'd invite, uh, Christian monks and nuns and Buddhist monks and nuns together. Like there might be 20 of us. They all brought their robes of their various traditions. And that, that was my work for 11 years in, in Boston. You know, I, I can't tell you how many people we've had on the show who bring up Merton as, a, as an inspiration, mostly Christians, but not entirely. Yeah. Um, what was Merton's take on the Trinity and how did that influence your thinking in uh writing the current book uh it's a really good question i um uh, i reviewed researched um uh, for myself for my own heart and also for the book about 18 christian mystics over the centuries beginning in the third fourth centuries and um merton is on that list um but i didn't emphasize his work on the trinity um huh. because i had other interests that's all um and I, I should mention that those, I had a whole chapter on those mystics in this book, but Robert Ellsberg at Orbis Books, who's is a, is a friend, good friend of mine, he basically told me, it's too big, this book is too big. So I dropped the whole mystics chapter. Oh. And so now the whole book is more like a memoir of my spiritual passage and, and so on. So, so if you wanna read Merton though, anyone he does, I created a website to to announce the new book. It's called mydearfarnearness.org. And there is that dash between far and near, mydearfarnearness.org. Mm -hmm. And you'll see a mystics link, and it will list all these mystics and my take on them. So that's, yeah. So tell us what you mean and how you interpret this standard Christian teaching of the holy trinity how you are uh, came to understand it and how you're uh, unpacking it in uh this book okay thank you thank you yeah 
So <clears throat> there's over 200 pages here, so I'm going to try to do, uh, do a summary that makes some sense to folks. Um, so the Trinity is, uh, in, in Genesis, um, Jesus, I have to say first, Jesus was a Jew, right? No question. He was a devoted Jew. So everything he taught arose through his training in the Jewish tradition. Um, so in Genesis, God creates creation. Elohim in Hebrew creates all of creation from nothing. So before time and space existed, there was nothing, right? And then, and then, then there was something. And then one of the first lines in Genesis is saying that humans, we humans are created in the image and likeness of God. So who is God is the, is the question. And what does God's identity have to do with our identity? That question led me into the, right into this book. So if we say that we're made in the image and likeness of God, then who am I is an important question. What does that mean I'm God? Well, who is God? And then that led me from the Jewish tradition where God is one to the Christian tradition, the early creeds, uh, we're talking fourth and fifth century, um, the Nicene Creed and the Chalcedon Creed, and finally, finally um, um, settled on in the eighth century, not until the eighth century, that that God is three in this in this sense. Jesus says, "Who is Jesus?" Okay, so Jesus comes and he says, uh, "When you see me, you see the Father," and the Father is the Creator, Elohim, but he he used Pater. Um, or he used Abba in uh, Aramaic. Uh, but what he meant was the creator who creates everything from nothing before there's time and space. So Jesus said, when you see me, you see the father, you see the creator. Like that blew my mind to really get that, what that means. Um, and then he gives the gift of the Holy Spirit. Everybody's sad because he's gonna be executed. All his friends are just like, you know, wailing and trying to save him. Like, we'll get an army together. And he says, because he was threatening to the religious authorities, um, that he says, um, don't, you know, don't worry. I will always be with you and I will send you the spirit. And so what the creeds then did is to say that creator is God, Jesus is God, and the Holy Spirit is God. And it took them a while to get there. It took like about four centuries for them to get there. Which means that when we're in the presence of the spirit, we're in the presence of God. When we're in the presence of Jesus, we're in the presence of God. When we're in the presence of the creator, we're in the presence of God. So um, that's one part of it. But then I was reading Aristotle and Aquinas later, um, who both had this theory of perception that <clears throat> I can only perceive you, Phil, accurately when I get in touch with the Phil inside me. Mm -hmm. What I see is what I am. Who I, who I see is who I am. And Jesus said to his friends before he died, I'm in you and you're in me, in John 14. Okay, so there's this sense of this interrelational identity, which in the book, I compare and contrast, and it's pretty much the same as Thich Nhat Hanh's interbeing, that we inter are with each other. 
which is which echoes this whole trinitarian sense that we are a dance around above the the the, the greek the word they came up with about this dance around of awareness of love is perichoresis peri is around and choresis is dance so we are this dance around of love and jesus is saying everything i have i give to you mm. so if you think about this jesus said when you see me you see the father and then he says to us everything i am you are uh i'm in you you're in me well wait a minute that and most christians i don't think really get what that means that means that we can manifest the creator the ultimate reality ourselves that um in a sense that everything and everyone is god which which is very advaita hindu i think yes know? certainly so, yeah so so that's where i go with with the trinity is that we we can't perceive the trinity unless we are the trinity and that you know based in uh, aristotle and aquinas's aquinas's word for that is con naturality that hmm. the world is in us we are in the world um but that you know this is i have to say this is difficult track to take with the trinity because it's very demanding you don't no, nobody can do this trinity thing which i liken to uh, saint paul's the mind of christ because i think Jesus's mind was Trinitarian. You can't do this unless you have a spiritual practice, unless you spend some time in silence, unless you then apply what you're learning in silence in your relationships and in your work. And that's where it becomes political too. Um, mm. I, I do a lot of environmental work and, you know, very practical work, financial, legal stuff to save land and habitat. And um, that this is what motivates me to keep going when I get hopeless about it and I can't raise enough money to save more, more habitat or whatever, it just keeps me going. So I, I don't fall into despair about the climate change and all that crap that's going on. Jonas, you, you, uh, to unpack uh, the Trinity even further, um, I'll, I'll, well, I'll read from the material uh, mm. from your website. You say that the Holy Trinity is not merely an abstract doctrine. It's a living experience that we can learn to practice in solitude, relationships, and communities. Yeah. And then you go into each person, so to speak, yeah. in, the, in the Trinity. So that's a, also a question. What does the, the person in the first, second, third persons that people associate with the trinity and that makes people very confused it's like how can one person be three persons <laughs> I, know, like, I, know. I mean it, it, that's a, a no, simplistic I mean, thing but that's what people yeah. think well so explain walt, yeah walt whitman said i am i contain multitudes so that's right we're, we're many people we're complex creatures um the thing is yeah this per but personhood is so interesting because what are persons you know, in our culture, we're consumers, right? And people are trying to sell us stuff and, and we're created as, we're treated as it's, uh, consumer products and so on and so forth. So the word person means there's some, there's a subjectivity in us that is, that is divine to me. Um, and so the persons of the Trinity are like a, three dimensions of my awareness. Each one is holy. Uh, in the first person, can I read just a bit? A little bit. Okay, so 
The first person is the creator who can't be conceptualized or known as an object of awareness. The only way to experience the first person is to let go of all images, opinions, judgments, even our cherished theologies about God. St. Teresa of Abba believed we can only do this when we descend into the nameless, sacred selfhood, capital S, at the center of the soul, which she called the interior castle. I understand this castle to be a sacred dwelling place in our souls and in our awareness that is free of social conditioning, free of ego self narratives. On our way into this castle, we find guidance, inspiration, comfort by believing. We also have, there's a belief quality, believing in the qualities of God in the Hebrew Christian scriptures, love, tenderness, mercy, forgiveness, and so on. But to finally enter, we must be naked without any belief. Our protective clothing of language and ideas is, is eventually burned away in the furnace of transformation. So that's like the first person, which is very Buddhistic in a sense, you know, and Meister Eckhart um, was um, really loved by many uh, Zen masters. Um, he, Eckhart said, um, uh, what did he say? <laughs> he said many things. Um, the eyes with which I see God are the eyes with which God sees me. Now, he's, he's a very non-dual person. And yes, he, indeed. I would put him in the first person category of awareness where there's no concept, nothing. But the second person is this manifestation of Jesus. So he's, he's all about relationships. He's always going out and forming relationships with friends, uh, with family. He struggles with family and so on and so forth. But it's all about Martin Buber's, you know, the Jewish philosopher. I thou. I thou. It's all I thou, I thou, which is a little different than the nothingness, the emptiness of the first person. Right. So, so the second person is friendship, like my friendship with you, Phil. For me, as a Christian, my friendship, there's a divine quality to I thou with, with you, which means, you know, which holds me to certain standards like honesty and, and friendship and love and um and curiosity and you know getting to know one another so that's the second person is the i thou and then the third is the spirit which uh, in the christian tradition brings me out into the world with other people to to feel this movement toward um uh, embodied love like martin luther king used the phrase beloved community and he often said it was the holy spirit that led him into that uh caesar chavez um migrant workers. Also, lots, lots of talk about the Holy Spirit. And, and I include their quotes in my book. So that's the, the first person is the dimension of mystery and presence. The second person it, where, where there's no, there's no categorization and no opinions, only presence. The second person is the I thou. And the third is, you know, going out um, and creating community. Uh, that's beloved community. That's the three. And there's, there's an interesting uh, macro, micro kind of feeling to uh, your take on, on the Trinity in the sense that um, there's something vast and abstract uh, and universal about the, the sort of um, theory or philosophy that of how you see the trinity but then there's also this um it's within you we all are yes the trinity 
Yes. And we all have those persons yeah. within us that or those yes. uh, means of perception within us. Um, and that brings it into the realm of uh, practical reality as opposed to theology and 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 doctrine. Um, and so your book also promises that there are practices yeah. in each of these categories of first, second, third person or Father, Son, Holy Ghost kind of thing um, that presume, I, I assume the practices are meant to uh, heighten one's capacity to experience these aspects of the divine. Is that correct? That's that's correct. Thank you. That's a really good point because that's the second half of the book are, are the practices. How do we be, how do we enter into the mystery of our, ourselves and the mystery that it is beyond us, far nearness? And how do we enter into the I-thou relationships uh, like yours and mine again? And, and also how do we enter into this movement of spirit which is in a sense seeking something that is seeking the harmony of human relationships across cultures and races and, and so on. And I want to uh, give you one example. And then the, I, I end the book with an epilogue on uh, Schindler's List. Mm. And the reason I do it, there's a whole chapter on Schindler's List. I, I call it a, um, a window into Trinitarian consciousness. And I closely examine uh, Oscar Schindler's final moments in, in the concentration camp when he, he has been a really despicable man coming into the work with the Nazis and making money as fast as he can and using uh, Jewish folks as workers who are not paid very much and they're taken advantage of. He gradually learns to love them while he's running these factories. And he takes it so personally that uh, at the end of the movie, you probably remember, um, the Nazis have been defeated elsewhere, but they still have their guns at the factory. And Oscar Schindler is standing on a ramparts, looking down at all the mostly Jewish workers, but he himself is Catholic. And he got out in touch with his Catholic tradition for a long time, but his wife is Catholic and he gets back together with her and after a lot of adulterous affairs. And there at the end, he's like a redeemed person. He, he looks out at all the Jewish folks and, um, he, and the Nazis are standing there on another rampart with their guns. And he looks up at them and he says, I know that you've been told to kill all of us, everyone in this room and me, and uh, now's your chance. So he just, becomes naked in front of the Nazi guards and in front of all the people. And it's because of his love for the workers now. And he and a rabbi in the group, while the Nazis are thinking about what they're gonna do, this rabbi in the group starts singing the Kaddish. And he's singing the Kaddish and pretty soon all these hundreds of workers start singing it. And Oscar Schindler starts singing it. And while he's singing it, he touches the cross on, on his lapel, the cross of Jesus. And it's, it's like the boundaries of love have, have collapsed. Mm -hmm. 
you know, it's just so beautiful. It brings tears to my eyes. And then, and then a little bit later, when the Nazis are, are starting to leave the plant, he's out on the uh, railroad tracks with some of the workers and they have their stripes, uniforms and so on and so forth. And he, hu he hugs the guy who plays his accountant. Ben Kingsley. He, ben Kingsley, he hugs, they hug and it's so sweet and they're crying. And Ben Kingsley is thanking him. And, and Oscar Schindler says, I could have saved more. I could have saved more. Oh my God. And then um, they're going to be driven out. He and his wife are going to be driven out, but he doesn't want to be mistaken for a Nazi or they don't want him to be mistaken for a Nazi. So they give him the striped uniforms of prisoners. Mm. And so Oscar and his wife are driven out of the camp in dressed as prisoners. I mean, the whole thing it, that uh, Spielberg put together is just so beautiful. And to me, it's a, it's an incarnation of the Trinity. Ah. A love, a love that passes, dissolves all the boundaries between us and also recognizes our distinctiveness. You know, the Kaddish is not Christian. The cross is not Jewish, but they're together. Does that make sense? Yes, it does to me. Um, much to think about in that, Jonas. We, we don't have much time, but I'll give you the last word. What would you like our listeners and anybody who reads your book? Uh, what is the primary takeaway you'd like us to have? Oh, to I suppose to go right to the, the heart of it, to to be inspired to for this longing that you you mentioned at the beginning here, the longing. Uh, believe and believe in the longing of your heart to love and to be love, believe in that, because that's, if anything's gonna save us in this planet that's falling apart with political polarization, with climate change, it's what's, what's ahead is gonna be so bad. I think the only thing that's gonna save us is that, that love. And I hope my book helps. Thank you for that. Hold up the cover again. Yeah. So let's be commercial here, sell some books. My Dear Far Nearness, The Holy Trinity, A Spiritual Practice, Robert A. Jonas, Orbis Books. Those yeah. of you listening and can't see the cover, Google it. And uh, I, I, I was very happy to have you on because um, I love fresh interpretations of what can be very stale uh spiritual and theological concepts. And uh, I think the Holy Trinity is one that's cried out for fresh, uh, a fresh look. And so I hope people pay attention to it. And uh, I love that you interiorize it instead of just making it, uh, you know, some abstract concept uh, or an article of faith. Yeah, thank you. So, thanks for being with us. And uh, listeners, again, uh, if you're tuning in for the first time, go to the website, spiritmatterstalk.com and our YouTube channel. Hit the subscribe button. It's all free. Um, and if you would like to contribute to our upkeep so we can keep it free, <laughs> um, Please do. It's uh, as Dennis always says. It's we're not a nonprofit, so it's contribution, not a tax deduction. So factor that into your math. 
Let me also mention emptybell.org. 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 And, and, and my uh, dear farnearness.org. My Both. dear farnearness with the hyphen dot org. All okay. that will be on the website when this is posted. Okay, Thanks. I just want Wait, wait, wait. Wait, um, one more thing. Show and tell. What is I, this? I'm playing Shakuhachi here, so right? But I'm not going to play because we don't have time. But this is the first person uh, the, of the Trinity playing Shakuhachi. That is, the person has no identity. And You know, when I saw you a few months ago, you gave me this cd so we might as well hold this up i happen to have it right next to me yeah. blowing bamboo that, that's available on itunes by the way oh man if i were a nasty guy i'd say who's bamboo i won't do it <laughs> <No>. <laughs> Thank you. take okay. care Jonas. phil you're a good man thank you